Please uh, turn now in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 5. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John. John chapter 5 beginning at verse 40. I'm going to go back to verse 38, just a couple verses back to bring in the context here a bit. It says, And you do not have his word, that is the Father's word, abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The question came from a pastor, and the question was why in his congregation some responded to the call of the gospel to salvation in Christ with faith and others did not. He was genuinely confused about what accounted for the difference. And I know that there are even young people here this evening who could sit down with that pastor and help him because you have an understanding of how God works in salvation that even this pastor didn't have. And I would anticipate your answer to him being something like this. Sir, the difference is that some have the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and others do not. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and a sinner being born again, he is dead in his trespasses and sins and therefore unable to respond to the gospel like he should. And so the difference is God giving some faith. Now I've heard people object to this idea of God being in charge of who gets faith or not. But the alternative, if you think about it, is to leave it up to man to get faith or not. And yet the Bible teaches that man is by nature spiritually dead. In fact, Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Plus Ephesians 2 says that faith is a gift of God and that it is a gift from God because otherwise, if it was something from us, something that we could conjure up, it would be a work and we would be able to boast about it and God will not have such boasting. Salvation is all about God being glorified, not man. And since no one naturally has faith, and since God must grant faith, the reality is that there will always be a rejection of Christ in the gospel unless God inserts new life into a sinner's heart. And let me add that God is not obligated to save any sinner. And also, our need for new life is our own fault, not God's fault, for in Adam we plunged ourselves into spiritual death. In the text before us this evening, Jesus rebukes those who refused to believe in him. Notice how very clearly he considers it the sinner's responsibility to believe. He doesn't excuse his unbelieving audience because they are fallen and spiritually dead. 
But what he does is to explain by way of warning why so many in his day refused to believe in him and thus lost out on the hope of eternal life. And so basically, one of the answers that could have been given to that pastor is, why do some believe and some do not? Well, because they're rebels against God. People don't believe because of three problems. First of all, a refusal to come. Second, hearts that are not right. And third, not believing the scriptures. So we begin with a refusal to come. Remember, in the preceding context, Jesus has just set forth four witnesses who testify to the validity of his claim to be the Son of God, equal with God. There is the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of Jesus' miracles, the witness of God the Father, and the witness of the Scriptures. I remind you that the Scriptures of Jesus' day consisted of what was often called the Law and the Prophets. The Law included those books of Moses, what are called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And basically everything else was subsumed under the heading of the prophets. That would include the historical books on the kings of Israel and Judah, the books of wisdom, including the Psalms, and what we then normally think of as the prophets. Now Jesus did refer at one point to the threefold division of the law, prophets, and Psalms. But most of the time, the, the entire Old Testament scriptures were referred to as the law and the prophets. And basically, the books of the laws, we think of the word of God as the law. It was that part of God's word that sets forth God's will for his people, including that system of religious ceremonies that were performed in, there in the tabernacle and temple that pointed to the coming Christ. And a prophet was not only a foreteller of future events, but more often a fourth teller, as some have put it, a fourth teller, a preacher, a teacher of the truth of God's word, and who his goal was to call God's string people back to the fold, and the prophet would typically point out people's sin, the ways in which they have failed to keep God's law, and, he's, and he's calls, he calls them to repentance. He calls them to put their faith in the coming Christ, and even the Psalms and other wisdom literature fit into this role and thus can be subsumed under the heading of the prophets. The point is that as Jesus finished up setting forth the various witnesses that testified to his divinity, he ended with the witness of the scriptures. And there's actually an emphasis here in, in, in Jesus' words on this particular witness of the scriptures. In the context even of the witness of the Father, Jesus rebuked his audience saying this, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And then he rebukes them in the verses before us for, for um, being merely students of the scriptures um, who could presumably tell you all about what the scriptures say. I guess that was actually verse 39 where he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And so Jesus' audience, they were, they were people who had studied the scriptures. They could tell you what the scriptures say. They probably had parts of it memorized. And they could engage you in debate over what the scriptures meant and how they were to be applied. But the problem was that they were viewing the scriptures as a source of eternal life rather than the Jesus of whom they spoke. And there's a big difference. 
Many people in Jesus' day, and the problem still exists today, that there are people who study the scriptures thinking if they can simply know what the scriptures say and then do what the scriptures say, they have eternal life. Now, we can agree that if, in fact, people will do what the scriptures say, they will indeed have eternal life. But what do the scriptures say to do? The problem that Jesus points out is that they are not actually doing what it says because the scriptures bear witness about Jesus and everything is geared to pointing people to faith in Jesus. In fact, if we think of the law of Moses, it was given not so that people could learn all of the rules and learn the Ten Commandments and all of the rules concerning how to sacrifice and worship at the tabernacle and then just conclude that, well, if I just obey all of these rules... I will have eternal life. See, that's what many were thinking it meant to do what Scripture says. And so that's what they were doing and what many continue to do. Um, I'm talking about how people consider the Scriptures to be a book of rules, that if we do our best to follow them, then we will have eternal life. It's thought that if we love God, if we love the neighbor by a life of obedience, we can earn our way to heaven. And so many think that way, but they're missing the main point. The law was given so that God's people would know God's holy standard through his law and thus know that they're not capable of the perfection that God requires for eternal life. The ceremonial law was all about pointing people to a coming savior who would atone for sin through various symbols and types. These ceremonies were not to be trusted to give eternal life. It wasn't simply a matter of just Do these things, go to the temple and offer sacrifices and you will be saved. The the Savior to whom they pointed was to be trusted. So what are we to think about those who don't see in the scriptures that they bear witness about Jesus, that they point people to faith in him for eternal life? Why is it that so many read the scriptures wrongly? Is it a matter of ignorance? Are we to excuse them for not knowing better? What's the problem when people use the scriptures as a religious book on how to save themselves? Well, the problem is a rebellious, unwilling heart that has no desire to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, Jesus doesn't beat around the bush as to the real cause of their reading the scriptures wrongly. He says, the scriptures bear witness about me. The witness is there. The witness is clear. And then what does Jesus go on to say by way of rebuke? He says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. William Hendrickson in his commentary, he translates it this way. He says, you do not want to come to me. And this places the responsibility for a lack of belief on them. A lack of belief on any of us today who would, who would not believe. The problem is one of the will. So many praise the free will of man, insist that man is free to choose good and to do the right thing. And in a sense, in a sense, they're right. Yes, man is free to act as he wants. There's no coercion coming from anywhere, especially not from God. No one makes man not believe. Man is free to exercise his will however he wishes. But the idea of man having a free a free will, a will in the, in the sense of being free from the coercion of his own sinfulness, that's not possible in our fallen state. The idea that man is free from his own rebellion and his own unbelief and his own twisted thinking and, 
and, and has a good will that is able to make good decisions regarding Christ, that is absolutely false teaching. The problem is what man desires. And his desires are such that by nature he has no interest in going to Christ for eternal life, and so he refuses. As Jesus says, he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. And let it be clear, let us understand very clearly what it means to come to Jesus or to go to Jesus. It means to have faith in Jesus. It means going to him in repentance and asking him to save you from the condemnation that your sins deserve. It means knowing that he came to pay the penalty of your sin by being your atoning sacrifice in your place, and that by repentance and faith in him, he will take your sin and you will receive his righteousness. The people in Jesus' day, and sadly so many today, don't want this. They refuse to come to Jesus. It's a problem of the will. But let's, let's dig deeper. Why? Why does man not want this? This brings us to the point that their hearts are not right. Most of what Jesus says in these verses can be subsumed under this point because the main problem with unbelief is a defective heart. The heart refers to your thinking, your desires, your will. It has to do with your motives and what you love, what moves you, what excites you. And so many are lost and never come to Jesus because of problems with their hearts. We've already considered a problem of the heart, right? This problem of a will refusing to come to Jesus. But another heart problem is introduced in verse 41. In an indirect way, as Jesus makes a statement about himself, he says, I do not receive glory from people. And I think when we hear that, we pause and we wonder, well, isn't Jesus supposed to be glorified by people? Don't we, in fact, glorify him? And in fact, isn't man's chief end to glorify God as well as to enjoy him forever? And uh, I think the word glory here needs to be understood. It's used here in a different sense. Uh, we might prefer to translate the word here as praise. I do not receive praise from people. And yet, with that translation, the very same objections could, can arise concerning why, well, why doesn't Jesus receive praise when, as God, he's supposed to be praised, isn't he, as part of people worshiping him? What Jesus is contrasting is a life lived for the praise of men over against a life lived for the praise of God. And Jesus saying he doesn't receive glory or praise from people, he's actually contrasting himself with his audience. Notice what he says about them in verse 44. He says, how can you believe? How, like word can has, is about ability. He's saying it's impossible for you to believe. How can you believe when you receive glory or praise from one another and do not seek the glory or praise that comes from the only God. So put this way, for Jesus to receive glory from people would place him in direct opposition to seeking the glory of God. And while Jesus does not live for the glory of men, that is exactly what Jesus says his audience does. They receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God. Clearly here, the, the glory that would come from God is considered here a good thing, and so the idea can't be that we want God to praise and glorify us as though God exists to obey and worship us. No, rather what is meant by seeking the glory that comes from God is God praising us in the sense of being pleased with us as we seek to honor him. 
We should be wanting to hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. We should want to know that God is pleased with our efforts to seek his glory. That's the only good kind of praise that could come from God to us. It's like the praise of a parent telling his child, I'm so glad that you have obeyed me and have done what I asked you to do, and you did it without complaining and arguing, and I'm really encouraged about the Lord's work in your heart by how you have conducted yourself. Your attitudes, your words, and your actions are to be commended. Keep it up. You should certainly desire that kind of response from God as you seek his glory. Meanwhile, it's an ungodly, sinful, wanting the praise of one another and not the praise of God that stands as a roadblock to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true in several senses. First, a focus on glory from other people goes hand in hand with hypocritical religion. A focus on glory from other people goes hand in hand with hypocritical religion. Jesus is pointing out that his audience, these people, they're living a contradiction as long as they are wanting the praise of men. Hypocrisy is basically a life of contradiction where you say you do things for a certain reason that really doesn't line up with what is the real reason. You can be sure that there was no one there listening to Jesus who would have admitted to not seeking the glory that comes from the only God. What person in the world doesn't want the praise of God? indicating God's approval. In fact, that's a good desire to seek. The problem is that people don't want God's approval on his terms, for that would require them to go to Jesus in faith. No man is actually interested in receiving glory from one another. Man wants man's praise. Man wants the prestige and popularity that belongs to being a person approved by others. Now, this can certainly go off track in very obvious ways, such as when people seek the approval of those who openly don't love God. If I'm seeking the glory of a mafia boss or the glory of Hollywood stars, it's clear I have no interest in praise that comes from God. But for many who reject Jesus, a seeking of man that is contrary to a seeking of God is really not that obvious. For the people in Jesus' day, the glory that came from one another was really the glory of people praising you for your faithfulness, praising you because of what a faithful person of God you are, what, a, what, a, what an amazing law-keeping person, religious person you are. The Jews that Jesus was addressing longed to be held up as having a reputation of holiness according to God's holy law. Think of the scribes and Pharisees who were considered the greatest examples of people favored by God and favored because of their obedience. But notice what Jesus says of them in Matthew 23. He says they do all their deeds to be seen by others. See, they're seeking the glory of men. He says they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, and that was their goal, 
But within, he says, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And in our text, Jesus tells the people in front of him who receive glory from one another, verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That itself is a claim to divinity. Jesus is saying, think of it, he knows their hearts. He knows that they do not love God. And this brings us to another problem of the heart. The problems of the heart are all related, but nevertheless to be distinguished. For those Jesus addressed, their hearts are focused on the glory of other people. And now we learn a more fundamental problem. There is no love for God. And this is manifest in several ways. There's no love for God because when you love God, you do good works simply out of love for him. That is not what the people Jesus was addressing were doing. That's not why they did good works. Jesus has just explained that their reason has nothing to do with God. How could there be a love for God when the reason they do their good works is to receive the praise of men? Their goal is not to please God. Now they certainly want to hear from God, well done. But they're not wanting to hear these words out of a longing to glorify him. They want to hear those words as a boost to their ego. They want to hear God confirm that they are good, righteous people who have earned their way into God's favor. In the end, God is only a means to their ends. And it's also clear that they don't love God because of the simple reason that they've not received Jesus in faith. They've not come to Jesus. They refuse to go to Jesus. For Notice verse 43 is really the explanation for verse 42. In verse 42, Jesus says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And verse 43 offers proof positive. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If you love God the Father, then of course you will love God's Son. If you trust in God, then of course you will trust in God's Son. If you listen to God, then of course you're going to listen to God's Son. And so the rejection of Jesus is a rejection of God. You cannot love God and reject Jesus because Jesus is God. It's that simple. To reject Jesus is to hate God. And uh, Jesus gives himself as an example of what it means to love God when he says, in contrast to his audience, I do not receive glory from people. Jesus did not come in order to be prestigious and popular for the reasons that people grant such things to some here on this earth. He didn't come so that he could speak and act in a way that would make people flock to him and give him earthly power. The glory that Jesus sought was always the glory of the Father, and the Father sent him, remember, to suffer and to die. The Father sent him to proclaim the truth, even though people didn't like what he said, and the rejection and hate of him only grew over time. One way it's stated in Scripture is that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course, we need to recognize that Jesus could have said and done things that would have reversed all of the negativity toward him. If he was interested in receiving the praise of unregenerate people with ungodly values and desires, he could have said and done a number of things that would have had people flocking to him. But they would have not been coming to him in faith for salvation. They would have been coming to him in order, for example, to receive the blessings of his miracles, the free food, healing from disease. They would have come to him with their allegiance as soldiers, as citizens 
who are ready to, ha to have him as king because of his willingness to exercise his divine power against Roman oppression. They would have given him their religious allegiance even. They would have gladly been disciples of the Lord Jesus if he had confirmed their personal righteousness and had taught the way to eternal life is through good works and offered himself as the example of who to follow. But Jesus refused to compromise the truth, which is that you and I have no righteousness of our own, and that the only way to be justified with the Father is in the way of confessing our sin and by faith receiving his merits. And Jesus rebukes their heart love for the praise of men by pointing out in the second part of verse 43, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Jesus is referring there to false teachers, false messiahs, people who would not come actually in the Father's name. Of course, they would purport to come in the Father's name, but they were nevertheless, these false messiahs were, were received. The Jews as a whole had no interest in receiving Jesus, but they were open to receiving false messiahs. And why is this? Exactly because of what was going on in their hearts in the hearts of these people that love the praise of men. Why are false teachers received so readily then and today? Because they confirm sinners in their unbelief. They tell sinners, you don't need a savior from sin. You're doing just fine by your own attempts at righteousness. And man's pride latches on to those things. Man loves the words of praise from men. We naturally want to hear the flattery that we are good people, that we can earn our own way to heaven. And we are also open, like the saviors of Jesus' day, to those whose salvation is about political reform and social reform. We want our earthly lives to be better. We want earthly peace and prosperity. And we're open to the person who gives us the means of giving us these earthly things that we crave. In Jesus' day, the Messiah that the, the, that the people wanted as a whole was a king with earthly power who would give them earthly prosperity, including dominion over all of their enemies. And if Jesus had been wanting the glory of men and had been willing to give sinful men what they wanted, he would have been received with open arms. The rejection of Jesus was because of hearts filled with earthly, self-centered desires these desires are always a roadblock to receiving Christ unto salvation. And then we have finally the problem of not believing the scriptures. Jesus has already spoken so much of the scriptures and now he concludes the defense of his person and ministry by returning to the scriptures. There's another main reason why people refuse to receive Christ and remain spiritually lost is because they don't believe the scriptures. The Jews of Jesus' day, this was evident by how they handled the writings of Moses. And I point out that Jesus is clearly here teaching that Moses was a writer of Scripture. And in Jesus' day, the writings of Moses were well known. They were highly respected. Um, everyone knew that his, Moses' writings were the first five books of the Bible that we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Jesus accuses his audience of not believing these scriptures, not believing Moses. He sets forth two problems. First of all, they don't believe Moses' writings. And second, they have set their hope on Moses. And these two problems work together. They're, 
And the issue is this, they're not understanding Moses' writings correctly. Jesus says in verse 45, must have been very disturbing to Jesus' audience. And the fact that he said what he did so boldly and openly proves that he's not seeking their glory, but the glory of his Father. Jesus first states something that I, that I actually struggled to understand as I read these words. Do not think, he says, that I will accuse you to the Father. And he goes on to say that Moses will accuse them. And I struggled with what Jesus means by that because I know Jesus is one day going to be judge over all men. And certainly these people who are in front of him, if they, were, are, if they die rejecting him, are going to be condemned by him for their sins. So what could Jesus possibly mean? Is the point that with Moses as their accuser, they're not going to need Jesus' accusations? Well, that, that, that explanation is somewhat satisfactory, but not completely because, again, it seems to be saying that Jesus is not going to be involved in judgment against them. And what gave me clarity was to look up the Greek word for accuse, and there was kind of an aha moment because I was reminded of the fact that This is a legal word, and it's referring to an accusation that is brought in a court of law to a judge. Accusations are never brought by the judge. And since Jesus is the judge, he's not going to be the accuser. But yes, there will be accusations, and there will be good reasons for Jesus to judge unrepentant sinners to hell, but the accusations will not be ones that Christ brings. The accusations will come from other sources, and I would suggests that their own hearts will condemn them for the reasons already laid out, an unwillingness to go to Jesus, a lack of love for God, a life lived for the praise of men, all of which go along with a sinner refusing to repent of his sin and to acknowledge his need for righteousness and uh, and acknowledging um, the need for the righteousness of Christ. But of course, there's also Moses as an accuser. It's really startling um, to hear Jesus say that his audience has set their hope on Moses. He says, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Moses is a mere man. How could they have possibly thought it worthwhile to put their faith in Moses? What is Jesus referring to? Well, Moses was for the Jews the great lawgiver. And they had set their hope on Moses in the sense that their hope was in the law that Moses had set down in the scriptures. They were convinced that by following the words of Moses, by living a life of obedience to the moral, ceremonial, and judicial rules and regulations of Moses, they would have eternal life. Moses was, in that sense, their savior. But there's more. It's suggested by commentators that there were Jews, that there's apparently records of of Jews speaking of Moses as their mediator. Remember how Moses in the Old Testament served as a mediator of God's people. He prayed for them. He stood in the gap. He urged God, don't extend your wrath against these your people. And, And God on occasion withheld his wrath. Now it wasn't that Moses had any personal merit by which to plead with God. All he was doing was pleading with God to act in accordance with his own promises, his own covenant promises to be gracious to his people. And of course, those promises centered in the coming of the Christ. And so Moses was only a type of Christ and his work as a mediator was only about highlighting God's covenant promises 
that were ultimately based on the merits of Christ to come. And yet we are told that there were Jews who believed that Moses, though dead, though in his soul in heaven, they, they still looked to Moses to pray for them, to, to be their mediator, which sounds to me an awful lot like the Roman Catholic heresy of human mediators, the saints and Mary uh, being prayed to, to pray for us. Among the Jews, there were those whose hope was that on judgment day, Moses would be there to praise them and to plead for them who had followed his law. And notice it's this idea that Jesus directly contradicts. He says, oh no, Moses is going to accuse you, Jesus declares. He's not going to praise you. And what Jesus says here about Moses' writing of Jesus brings out clearly that Moses never taught salvation by works. He never taught any, any way of salvation through him. At the very center of the writing of Moses is the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the Messiah to come alone. Nowhere in the writings of Moses is there anything that encourages the false hope of sinners meriting salvation by good works. The record of the Old Testament is basically one huge account of the failure of God's people to live in obedience. And yet God has a holy standard revealed in his law. Yes, he does. But we can't meet it. And yet God does not abandon his people. He doesn't leave his people without hope. Our hope is in God providing a son of the woman who will crush Satan's head. Our hope is in the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Our hope is in God providing an atoning sacrifice for us in his Messiah, who we know to be Jesus. This is what Moses wrote about. And it's clear that if people won't believe Moses' writings, then they're certainly not going to believe what Jesus says. Because Moses and Jesus are in agreement about what God's plan of salvation is all about. It's, it's salvation is by grace through the Messiah, through faith in him. Notice in closing the significance of Jesus' words that the problem for those who are lost spiritually is that they don't believe God's word. You can be sure that the accusation of these Jews not believing God's word, the, especially the, the, the word of God as it came through Moses, that, that this accusation would have met with great opposition. They would have insisted, no, we do believe the books of Moses, and they would have insisted, we believe that they are the inspired words of God. And they as a whole knew the content of the books of Moses. They would have insisted even that they agreed with what Moses said, which brings us to see then that belief is more than just saying you agree with what God says in the scriptures. It's even more than working at applying the scriptures to your life. The Jews were working very hard at doing what the scripture said, or so they thought. The problem was that they had a wrong understanding of the scriptures. Belief then requires knowing the truth over against error. It requires reading the scriptures correctly. And Jesus offers no excuses for misunderstanding Moses. The fact is the scriptures speak of Jesus. And if you read the scriptures and miss your need of Jesus, then you don't believe the scriptures. You can insist you know them, you obey them, and thus believe them. But if you do not go to Jesus for life, you do not believe them.
So what about you? What is your relationship to Jesus, to the scriptures, to God? It all goes together. To love God, to trust God, is to love and to trust Jesus. To believe in the scriptures is to understand and believe the gospel of sinners needing grace and forgiveness and finding it in Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that each one of us would believe the scriptures, the scriptures that speak the Lord Jesus, of our need for him, of our sinfulness, of our inability to save ourselves, but of the provision for sin in Jesus. Lord, may we all, each one here, be those who go to Jesus, not refusing to go to him, but readily going to him for life. Lord, may there be no roadblocks to faith in Jesus. We pray that gone from us would be a seeking of the praise of men. May our goal always be to seek your praise. We, Lord, pray that our desire would be always to glorify you, to believe in you, to trust in you. Lord, give us a proper and growing understanding of your scriptures. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.